Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Beyond Words podcast with me, Michelle Adams. And this week, I'm so excited because I'm bringing you an episode with the wonderful Shirila Pena. For anybody that has been living under a book rock for the last few years, um, Cherie is one of the most uh, prolific writers by releasing six books since 2017, all of which have gone on to become bestsellers. And I'm so excited to sit down and chat with her today about her latest thriller, which is called Not a Happy Family. I read it this week and it is absolutely exceptional. It's so fast paced and exciting. And so to have this opportunity to sit down with her now and um, hear about how the book was created and her thoughts on the characters and the plot um, is really uh, exciting for me. And I'm going to hand over now to the conversation recorded with Shuri. Shuri, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, I recently had the pleasure of uh, reading your latest book, Not a Happy Family, which I believe is already out in the US and is imminently due out in the UK. Is that correct? That's right. It's out in the UK on August the 5th. Great. Uh, well, I read it last week and uh, I read it in one giant sitting. It was absolutely impossible to put down. It's so fast paced and so punchy. Um, and so talking to you today is a real pleasure to have the opportunity to chat with you about um, how that book was created. Thank you. So tell us, um, tell us first a little bit about, I mean, I find it hard to believe anybody who's listening to this podcast doesn't know who you are and what books you've written before, but tell us a little bit about your journey um, as a writer into this, into the position that we are today. Like, where did it start? Well, it started, um, you know, as a kid, I always wanted to be a, a writer and I, I didn't follow that path because, you know, I just you know, it's just sort of a dream, mm. um, not a practical path for me, I thought. Uh, and then when I was, you know, an adult staying home with my children, um, after I'd gone off in various career paths that weren't writing, I, um, I started messing around with fiction and I started writing literary fiction. So I actually wrote a couple of literary comedies in Canada. But the, the truth is, I've always been attracted to thrillers and mysteries more than anything else and that's that's what I watch on tv that's what I like to read and when I was you know a kid I grew up with with mysteries and thrillers and so on so I'd always wanted to write thrillers and mysteries but I just didn't know how to plot them and I know I know that they're um, very plot driven and they have to have very complicated and interesting plots and when I started writing I started literary fiction and I didn't have a, an outline or a plan and I just sat down with the character and I I was just experimenting. And when I was done, I actually had a plot and um, it worked to, to do that for literary fiction. But I still believe that to write a thriller, you had to have a plot ahead of time. Like you had to know where you were going. Otherwise, how would you possibly manage it? Right. Um, but one day after I'd written, I was, I think I was writing my, into my third literary novel. And I thought, you know, I really just want to write a thriller, but I didn't think I could do it. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to try it. And I'm just not going to tell anybody that I'm trying it. And I'm going to approach it in the same way, which is just, you know, just from A to B and I, and I don't yeah. plan it. And I did it. And I came out with a couple next door in six months. And, you know, I honestly, nobody was more surprised than me to be able to write a thriller that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I finally told my husband that I've been writing a thriller and, um, I thought, well, this isn't half bad. And I sent it out to an agent and, you know, the rest is history. That was, that book took off for me very, very quickly. 
and uh, sold all over the world and was, you know, a big book of the year in Britain and so on. So that couple next door really got me going. And then I thought, oh, if I can do it once, I can do it again. <laughs> so then, you know, I've been writing thrillers ever since, and I've been doing them the same way, which is to say, I just start with point A and I just figure it out as I go along. And the funny thing is, really is that they're very well plotted, which I find hilarious because I'm not a plotter. And, but somehow I can plot as I go. And I just, I find that very strange. Apparently I'm very good with plot, who knew? The first book I ever wrote, I called it my plotless wonder until it's almost (laughs) finished. And then I sat back and I thought, oh, actually this has a couple of nice arcs to it and it all comes together. So I must plot, you know, somewhere in my unconscious brain. Um, but certainly not consciously. And that is incredible to me to hear you say that what held you back from writing a thriller is your fear about being able to craft a plot when what people love about your books is that the plot is so tight and fast-paced and twisty and uh, sort of shocking as you go through the journey of reading. I know, it's it's amazing to me still. (laughs) Every time I do it, I think, wow, that's weird. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. and people go, you know, how do you come up with your twists? And the answer is, I don't really know, because they just kind of hit me as I write along. And, you know, as I write, things happen and they lead to other things. And sometimes I'll be completely sideswiped by, by an idea that'll just come out and I'll go, oh, that's so good. I love that. And um, yeah, it's it's great. So, you know, maybe it's, a, it's good that it worked this way. I learned how to write, writing my earlier literary books. And then I had the confidence at least to try writing what I wanted to write in secret. Um, but now I'm, you know, I'm out there. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's astonishing how you hold back from doing something you want to do because you think you can't do it. Yes. And um, yeah, and it turns out that was really where, that was my zone. You know, that's and- my zone to do thrillers. And I just find that very, but you know, I've read millions of them. So maybe that, you know, maybe that's helped. Probably. And did it feel very different when you were, when you sat down to write your first literary fiction, you mm. must have thought, right, I can do this now. I've got, I've got a plan, even if not a plot, I've got the, the plan of what I'm going to do. And then when you sat down to write your first thriller, did it feel nerve wracking in a sense for the thriller that the literary fiction did not? Did it feel like an apprehensive thing to do? Or did you go into it thinking, I know that I'm going to finish this? No, I went into it just as sheer, um, I'm going to just see what happens. So I had a literary agent. I had, you know, literary books out there. I certainly didn't tell them that I was writing a thriller. I didn't tell my husband I was writing a thriller. I just thought I'm going to just experiment and have fun. And actually it was very, very freeing. So um, if you think no one's ever going to read it, and if you think no one knows that you're writing it, Um, They all think you're working on some literary thing and you're up there in the office, like having a really good time with this kidnapped baby. Um, It's very liberating if you think that you never have to show it to anybody. And then as it goes along, you go, oh, you know, this is pretty good. I'm really enjoying writing this. And it was such a different thing for me to write because it was so tense. And I didn't know I could write tension because what I wrote before was comedy. So it was a lot of character and a lot of comedy. And I used to giggle writing those. I would write those and I'd enjoy writing them and I'd be laughing along. But these, you know, Couple Next Door was different. It was yeah. it was very suspenseful and yeah. it, um, it was very tense. And yeah, that kind of speed, that kind of fast pace isn't what I had in my literary novels. So um, it was very different and very fun. And 
you know, by the end of it, I sort of felt like, yeah, I think, I think this is what I want to do, you know? And then of course, when I sent it out, I thought it was, I thought it was, you know, pretty good. I thought, I thought it could go to an agent. Yeah. And then really, honestly, I was just astonished at response to that book. I blew my mind. It still blows my mind. Um, I, I still get stuff every day from people reading Couple Next Door. And, and the response was a phenomenon and, mm-hmm. and it has continued to be so because this is now your sixth book and you have hit the bestseller lists every time. So to go from writing literary fiction to suddenly being on the New York Times bestseller list for a book that you had not really even been sure about that somebody was going to see, what was, what was that like to experience that as, as a writer? It was just like glee, a feeling of glee, you know, sort of because literary fiction is very different. You know, things happen very slowly. Yes. You know, they send a book out and it's like months before anybody reads it and gets back to you. And, and this is even with an agent. Um, but, you know, in thrillers, it's just like I call I sent it out to an agent by email. She called me the next morning. We had coffee. She said, I'm going to New York next week. I'm taking your book. Um, she calls me from New York. We have a preempt. And it's, you know, really good money for a literary writer who gets paid yeah. nothing. Yeah. And um, and then it was just, I'd be out running errands. And I'd get a phone call. Oh, we sold to such and such a country. And oh, we sold to such and such a country. And oh, we sold. And I would just like pick up my phone and go, oh, <laughs> it's my agent calling with more good news. So um, it was it was really exciting. It was probably the most exciting part of, you know, time of my life. Um, and now I'm a little more a little more blasé about it, right? But um, yeah. back then it was huge to a literary writer who sold only in Canada and sold, you know, a couple thousand copies, like to yeah. be sought after by, um, you know, and then to have the sales go the way they did, you yes. know, actually once, it was one thing to everyone buying it. And then you, of course you worry, well, what if, what if the public doesn't buy it? And then yes. of course it, yeah. it did so well. It was just like, <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic. And then I had a, you know, I had a two book contract and then the, um, so after all that, wore off I had this second book to write and then it was like oh my god how did I ever write a thriller yes and how am I ever going to write another one and so I had I had a bit of a struggle with that dreaded second book which you know many people do and I had quite a few false stars with that one but once I got into it it was the same thing I just wrote it straight through and without a plan and you know after floundering around a little I did it again and now I, I now I know that I'm able to do it each time although I'm a little worried about the next one, but you know, I always worry, can I do this again? And I always manage to do it. It's just my process. Second book does seem to be the one that sort of catches everybody up on, yeah. on the road. It, it's such a yeah. difficult one to write. It's the, yeah. it's the first one you probably had to write under a contract with a deadline and on the back yes. of either success or not doing so well. It's, it's yeah. always a challenge, I think. It's a lot of pressure, a lot of, um, a lot of eyes on the second book, especially when the first one does well, and um, the time crunch, and you're doing a lot of promotion and writing at the same. It was a completely different world for me yeah. um, then, and now I'm I've got more of a, you know, a system, like more of a rhythm to it than I did then. Well, yeah, the giddiness has gone a little bit, but I'm really happy with how things are going. Yeah. And does it now? Now it just feels a lot more. You say the system is in place, the giddiness is gone. It now feels more like a day job. You turn up, you write, it happens. Or do you still sort of sometimes think, well, what am I going to do today? How am I going to take this plot forwards? Um, I, I'm very disciplined. So I, I just have a, um, a system or a method. So when I'm running a first draft, I, 
you know, I write every day because that's how I get my momentum going and that's how I get my ideas flowing. Um, and when I'm not writing, when I'm editing, it's, it's a bit different. Those days are usually longer and I find them a little harder. Um, and then when I'm promoting, the days are all over the place and I don't, you know, I'm not writing much when I'm promoting. So each, the, the year falls into different um, slots. So in the summer, I'm promoting heavily. Um, in the fall, I'm writing my first draft. And then in the winter, it's those slogging, you know, editorial months. Yes. So I sort of have a nice sort of, you know, program, timetable, whatever. And so we're at book six now in your thriller career. So tell me a little bit about this latest release, Not a Happy Family. Okay, so Not a Happy Family, and I have it right here. It's got a beautiful cover. It um, is a beautiful cover. <laughs> It's about a really toxic, dysfunctional family. Um, it, it's, it's about the Merton family. There's a uh, Fred Merton, who's a self-made billionaire, um, has his own robotics company, and his wife, uh, Sheila. So anyway, they're very, very wealthy, and they have three adult children, um, Catherine, Dan, and Jenna. And it's been a very dysfunctional family all along because... The fact is Fred Merton is a psychopath. And I mean, it's not broadly, widely known that he's a psychopath, but, but he's a psychopath as some, as a, a small proportion of very, very successful businessmen are psychopaths and he's one of those. And so the family, the kids are all possibly on that uh, spectrum of psycho psychopathy as well. So they've got the, the genetic link maybe, and they've also been brought up not very well. So anyway, what happens is there's this Easter dinner and the three adult kids come to dinner and there's a lot of tension that night and um, the father's being very, um, taking things away from the kids and the kids have expectations of what they expect to, to get. Um, and the dad's disappointed in them and he's taking things away. So that night, um, the Mertens, the, the dad and the mother are brutally murdered in their house. And then there is, of course, a murder investigation. And of course, the three children are the crime suspects. So the book is really about which of these three children was possibly nuts enough to murder their parents in such a way, um, or is it someone else? There are some other suspects as well. And the siblings, it's all about the relationship among the siblings and their, their rivalries and their, um, you know, their competitiveness. And it's really a very, it's a very toxic family. Um, so anyway, maybe one of them uh, murdered the family, murdered the parents to get the money because they're going to inherit a ton of money. So, um, I mean, it's, yeah. it's the most dysfunctional family you can possibly imagine, but mm -hmm. it's, it's all there under this very nice, shiny surface of, yes, uh, luxury, a beautiful home, um, excellent position in society for most of them, besides the fact that there are these undercurrents of difficulties that lie between them. And it is so plot driven, it's so fast, but also the characters themselves, they're so rich and you feel them as real people and their problems. Uh, so how did you create your characters? How did you come up with this family? Oh, well, they just kind of grow as I write them. I don't really plan them out either. I knew that um, I would have three kids and I knew that the parents would play favorites. 
So I, I knew one of the kids was going to be probably the firstborn was probably going to be the conservative, pleasing one that would do what the parents expected. And that's the eldest daughter, Catherine. And she becomes a doctor, you know, and does everything right. And then the son, there's only one boy. And I had a lot of, I knew there's going to be a lot of pressure on him from the dad to um, take over the company someday. And um, the dad is such a hard taskmaster, of course, the son will invariably disappoint him. And then I've got the youngest daughter. She's like an outlier. She's an artist and she just bucks against all tradition. So they're all very, very different because, you know, as a parent, you never know what you're going to get. And what, what you do get is you tend to get your kids completely diversifying, right? The kids are very different from each other. Yeah. So that's, that's what they're like. And um, I don't know, they just kind of grew as I wrote them, you know, the tension between them and the, the different personalities that came out when they talked to each other. And, and what I loved is they, talk to each other the way siblings do right there's sort of you know how siblings are they they can be very blunt they can kind of fight and they can be kind of veiled and yeah anyway I was really happy with the way the, the relationship among the siblings that's what I was really I wanted to hone in on that in this book um, and also the relationship between the parents and the kids because the parents weren't good parents and they were they were you know disappointed in their children unfairly so and then the 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 children were resentful of the parents it was just a big toxic mix and the, all the fit you know the favoritism and so on um it really sort of warped things and you know the money having that much money i think distorts people and it gives people strange it just warps people i think a lot of money can can really distort things so i yeah, mean it's a mess it's definitely distorted them because their their whole dynamic between parents and children all seems to be driven by the material aspects of their life the money the house the possessions and who's going to get what and even after their parents death they seem obviously very driven by that but at the same time I couldn't help but kind of sympathize with these kids uh, all of them in in some yeah. way shape or form and yeah. what I loved about them is that we knew so much about them, but somehow you managed to do that without giving us huge background information dumps about things that they've done. So how do you, how do you try to craft that? Do you have a specific way that you try to add information about characters? Because it was so, it was so effortlessly flowing through the plot, but at the same time, I felt like I was learning so much about these characters. So how, how is it that you try to achieve that? Do you know what? Because rather than doing a, an information dump about the characters, what I do is I, I use dialogue a lot to understand who they are. And I can imply a lot just in the way I do a lot of stuff by suggestion and by implying things. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, there's a line in there about Dan's dog and how she was um, his first experience of unconditional love. So, you know, he's never ever been unconditionally loved by his parents it took a dog for, for that to happen yeah or just the way the kids react to each other you know um I'm trying to think of a good example but basically it's through suggestion and implying things suggesting things through dialogue having things work doing two or three things at once in a sentence instead of just you know he said x and then dumping information in it's, it's hard to explain but it's very tight it's um I try to get a lot across in very little because I don't I don't like 
big dumps of information. I think yeah. it slows things down. Yeah. And I think dialogue is one of the best ways to understand character because you can see what they're saying, you know, why they're saying it, who they're saying it to. And you could often know what they're not saying because if you're in their head, you know what they're not saying. So it's it's um it's one way I use to discover character and refine them. That was one of the things that I really loved about it because it keeps the pace so fast. And I, I mean, perhaps I'm wrong on this, but I think that's one of the things that you're so well known for is having these fast paced books that are just wildly entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone says it's the pace. It's, you know, they're fast books, they are. And when I wrote Couple Next Door, I mean, I, I sat down, all I wanted to do was write a page turner. I just wanted something that would just, you know, be something that you could put down. And that's essentially what I've been doing ever since just writing uh, really fast paced page turns and there's more to it than just you know things happening quickly it's like you know leaving the little cliffhangers and then it's it's the you know not just the the bigger twist but it's the little reveals like every chapter you've got a little oh and then you think oh well what's the ramifications of that and then it's like I didn't think that and then there's a little reverse and you go oh I didn't take it that way and then um, it's all about the reveals that's what makes the pacing work um rather than just it's not an action thriller with a million things happening it's the little reveals mm. that make you keep reading that makes it um compelling one of the things i really it was sort of slightly tied into that as well is the fact that we get a lot of different perspectives even in a single chapter you've got a lot of different perspectives of the characters and so you're learning things about one character and the secrets that they're keeping at the same time as hearing something from another character who doesn't know the information that the reader has and that makes you as a reader feel very invested in Mm -hmm. people discovering the truth yeah yeah that's that's one of the beauties of using multiple points of view is it gives you such range and such opportunity to to do more like if you're if you're locked into one point of view or maybe two then I f- find that more limiting like I find if I can go into all of my no I don't don't go into everyone in the book but I, I'll pick several points of view that I'm going to go into and I love doing that I love getting into people's heads and then there's so much you can do when you're inside one person's head and then you're inside someone else's head yeah and you know you can you can also use that you know, someone can say something in dialogue when you're inside their head and they're misleading you because there's, they're saying something to one verse to someone and, and, you know, the reader thinks that's true, but they're just saying it. And it, anyway, it's, it sounds complicated, but there's lots of ways to mislead the reader. And I find multiple points of view is such a great way to do that. And also if I ever get stuck and this is, it, it helps me, this is why I use multiple points of view. If I get stuck, where I come to an end of of something, then I switch to point of views and that carries the story on and then I'll switch again and it carries the story on. Whereas if I, you know, I found that very early on that if I was just like, well, I don't know what happens next. I'll just switch over to the wife. Yeah. You know, see what she does next. And so it helps me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a lot of, a lot of the drama obviously all stems from the parents' behavior and this idea of, um, I mean, I suppose in one sense, the, the poor upbringing that they had, but also this, this possibility of, sort of the bad gene, the, psycho, like the psychopathy but that they all seem to, to have inherited <laughs> from the father. To some degree, some more than others, perhaps, yeah. So um, did you have to 
to do much research about this, about how how this might have passed on from generation to generation, because this sort of idea of generational trauma is 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 really prevalent in this novel, and it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I've always been interested in the entire uh, question of nature versus nurture, and you know, a lot of I read a lot about this kind of thing, and psychopath, you know, psychopaths are thought to be it is somewhat genetic. Definitely, yeah. it, it, there is a genetic component, but it's also um, it's also a, a, a how you're brought up component. It's it's what experiences you have. So someone might be born with a gene, and like they can identify psychopaths now very young brain scans, and they can try and work with them to try and fend it off, kind of thing. Um, and they're starting to think that psychopathy might be more of like a spectrum thing. Um, varying degrees of you know um, which I had a great deal of fun with I didn't say it in the book because it's just sort of a theory whatever but um, I looked at my characters and I thought oh they're all somewhere on this range of psychopathic behavior and you know they're generally normal but you know this stuff comes out here and there so um, and I had it you know um, running through the family and they they also had a very dysfunctional upbringing so it's hard to say um, but it's hard to say in real life what makes a psychopath. Yes, you know, it's 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 fascinating, really. And and most psychopaths don't do a tremendous amount of. Well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. I mean, a lot of psychopaths don't do a tremendous amount of harm. They're very successful in business and so on. But but they're not violent killers. Most yeah. of them. Um, but one of these, you know, one of these days they'll figure it out. But I, it's it's a very interesting subject to me. A lot of my books do have psychopaths in them. Um, I, I find them fascinating. If you're a crime writer, you know, <laughs> psychopaths are your bread and butter, really. So, um, yeah, I really had a lot of fun with that whole nature nurture thing. One of my favorite books was um, We Need to Talk About Kevin. Do you oh, know that book? Oh, yeah. yeah. That, and that yeah. whole book is about, you know, is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it yeah. what she did? Is it the way she brought him up? Or was yeah. he just that way, right? Yeah. Um, so ever since I read that book a long, long time ago, I've always been very fascinated by books about that. You know, how much of a role does the parent really have? I'm coming to the conclusion that's not that much. <laughs> there's, another, um, there's another book just recently released, which I'm not sure that you've read, called The Push by Ashley Audrain. Which oh, I love that book. Yes. It's such same a fabulous idea. book. Same, th- same yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, book. Same idea. How much was the mother and how much was the kid was just that way? And I'm totally on the, I'm, I'm falling more and more on the side of, people are born with their temperaments and so on. And, you know, I think parents can do harm, but I think, um, you know, certainly they can make things a lot worse, but sometimes there's just a bad seed there, you know, Um, these school killers and so on. I I always feel badly for the families, you know, on all sides. Yeah. So those are both very good books about nature and nurture. Um, Yeah. The push was really good. I love that book. Yeah, it's so, such a lovely book. I spoke to Ashley for the podcast, actually. It just came out oh, good. yesterday. Um, oh, good. And uh, and she's such a, a treat to talk to as well. And I just thought that book was such a nice a nice way of looking at that nature-nurture argument because it's so yeah. interesting. It's such an yeah. interesting subject. Yeah, and she's a Canadian too. She is, yeah. I think she's yeah. from just down the road from you, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that I really liked about this book is that it and I think it again ties into this multiple points of view 
it, it felt almost to me like I was watching one of these crime docuseries when you have sort of a, a crime takes place and then the story is told by the journalist, the police chief, uh, the mm -hmm. family member, the ex-lover, and everyone has a small piece to add. Um, mm. And it made me wonder whether you like that kind of thing and whether that's the kind of media that you might be inspired by for your stories. I, I, I do love true crime. Mm. Um, I, I don't know any, I don't know if I know any crime writers that don't love true crime. It's so inspiring and it's so interesting. Like I, you know, on Netflix, I watch all the true crime um, and I watch forensic files and, you know, I just, it's so interesting because, you know, the true stories are just they blow your mind with how bizarre they are. Honestly. And, you know, I was talking to Linwood Barkley the other night. We're, we're going, you can't make some of the stuff up. Like if some of the stuff, if you made it up in a novel, somebody would say, well, that would never happen. Yeah, but you totally. know, truth, truth is so strange. Um, so yeah, I, I do love, I do love true crime. I just watched uh, the Irish case about Sophie. Oh yeah, me too. I the French name at the end, but that was such a fascinating case. And um, and so unbelievable, yes, I, like you're saying. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. So I love, I do love that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I've probably seen them all. Well, maybe not all, but I've seen them all on Netflix. I've seen, you know, <laughs> um, and they're very interesting. It's interesting. Uh, even the one, did you see the one about the Chelsea Hotel? But the girl that went missing in, in the Chelsea Hotel. It, within the hotel in, in, the in hotel Los Angeles. Turned, yeah. And it yeah. turned out that she was in the water tank on yeah. top of the. Yeah. That was fascinating. So tragic. And that was done in the same way. They interview all these different people yes. and yeah. the history of the hotel. And, and it's, you know, all the video of her in the elevator, you know, going yeah. in and out. And it was absolutely fascinating. And But what was interesting about that one is they had all these internet sleuths trying to solve the crime. Yes. Yeah. And there was another one called um, on Netflix called Don't Fuck With Cats. I don't know if you saw oh, I haven't that seen one. that one. Oh, my gosh. OK, this one's interesting because it's about a Canadian serial killer. And it's about a, um, a guy who I forget his name. It will come to me. Magnata, Luke Magnata. He had some videos of torturing cats and the people on the Internet got very upset with this. And they, they got together like sleuths to try and track down who was doing this. And I don't know how much you know about psychopaths, but they often start out, you know, the, the murderous psychopaths often start out torturing animals, yes, and yes. Humans, whatever. Anyway, they tracked him down. Turns out it was this Luke McNaught guy who had actually been killing people um, in Montreal. So anyway, it was a fascinating, I, I recommend it. It's quite I, interesting. Yeah. I'm, I was don't, actually looking. Called, don't, don't fuck with cats on the internet. That's what, what that's what it's called. I yeah. think I've even seen that advertised on Netflix and bypassed yeah. it. Even though I'm a cat lover, I thought I, I won't watch that because I didn't really know what it was about. But now it's a crime yeah. series. I'm definitely going to watch yeah, it. it. It's about, it's like the Chelsea Hotel one. It's about people on the internet wanting to find the answers. And so they drive this kind of mass sleuthing thing. That's, it's very interesting. Um, so, yeah, I, I obviously do watch a lot of these true crime things since I'm, I can tell you all about them. Yes. But they're wildly entertaining even despite yeah. the, the subject and for a crime writer like you say I mean it's it's inspiring because you read some of the or see some of these stories and you just think well if I wrote that my agent would send it back and say no one's gonna buy this <laughs> no one would believe that this could happen <laughs> I know I know it's bizarre maybe I should try that I'll do something so over the top um I don't know anyway 
Well, I, I'm um, definitely going to read that if you do. <laughs> <laughs> the people that would listen to this, a lot of them will be unrepresented by agents and publicists, mm-hmm. uh, agents and publishers. And do you think that you would be able to, it's always really difficult to give sort of like, do this, do that advice, like stepwise lists. But do you think that there's a certain thing that helps people get to the point of being represented and um, to have a, a shot at publication? Or do you think that it is one of those things that's very hard to pin down? Um, I, I think it is hard to pin down, but I think the most important thing, like everything's been done a million times. So the yeah. only thing that's going to make your book stand out is it, it's it's you telling it, it's your voice. Yeah. So the only way you can find your own voice is by writing in your own voice and not trying to mimic others or um, if you can come up with what's a really a, a true expression of everything you are looking at something that's unique, then that, I believe, if it's good, it, I believe it will find a place because yeah. there's just, it, it, you have to stand out now. I, I think with me, with Couple, what was different about that was it was the pace. It was the first, it was the multiple points of view was a bit, was a bit different back then. There wasn't mm. a lot of people doing that. Um, like there was people doing omniscient, you know, where you're the overarching point of view, but mine are all limited third person, multiple points of view. So I'm yeah. deeply in the head of this one, then this one, then this one, and this one, yeah. and the pace. And I think that was unusual. And that, I think that really caught the eye of, of buyers. Um, so if, if you can find something about the way that you write, that you love to write, and you have to write what you really enjoy and, 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 that where you really come out to the you know and if you can do that then I think you've got a good chance of of finding an audience if you write derivative stuff it's going to be really hard like the market is pretty saturated and I think Mm. it gets harder all the time um but also I think a really good agent makes all the difference in the world yeah and um I know because I've had not necessarily great agents but I've had the world's best agents so um and I will say this, that I think most agencies that are most of the good agencies will read stuff if you send it. Yeah. They'll read a few pages. So I think the best way forward, once you've, I think, done the best that you can do is send to the agent that you think is the best kind of person to represent you. So you read who's on their list. You see what kinds of books they like, and then you send it to them. And um, if you get a very good agent, then you've got a really good shot. Because the good agents, they don't take stuff on that they think they can sell. They think they can sell, for sure. Yeah. Um, And what about your experience of the publishing world? Um, Has it been very different from the sense of being a literary writer to a crime fiction writer? Has that? Yeah, it's completely different. It's, It's like whole new ball game because when I was doing literary fiction in Canada I was with a small press I had a literary agent that did literary stuff and I was sold to a small press and they were very good to me they did a beautiful beautiful books um they did two of my books and um but there's no there's no money in literary fiction mm. so they didn't so I got no money basically but they had no money for marketing no money for promotion um there's it, they live on grants in Canada that's how literary publishers, right. you know, the small ones, that's how they exist. 
Um, so unless you're on a prize list, um, it's very hard to get any attention at all. And with small Canadian quiet fiction, it's very hard to sell in New York. Yeah. Um, so it's a very slow moving, very impecunious, <laughs> there's no money in it. Um, and there's no attention really. Like it's, it's a very quiet, small market. Yeah. So crime fiction in contrast is there's a huge market for it and it's a worldwide market and it's, you know, it's an international market and the money is really big and the, the attention is huge. So if you're a good crime writer with a good agent, then you sell all over the world and you get a lot of attention. So, and it's fast. So it's a completely different world. I can, I can tell you, you know, very different. Well, also you have to write a year, which I don't think literary writers ever do. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very hard to write a book a year. Um, it's been so nice to sit and chat with you about the book today. Um, and if I could ask you to do a reading for the episode, that would just be great. Sure, I'll do that right now. I'm just going to close my door because someone's coughing outside. Okay, okay. In the land of COVID, you don't want to hear people coughing. Honestly, honestly. <sighs> okay. I'm just going to read um, the prologue of Not a Happy Family, and it should take about two or three minutes, I think. Great, thank you. All right. So, um, there are many expensive houses here in Brecon Hill, an enclave on the edge of Aylesford in the Hudson Valley. <clears throat> Situated on the east side of the Hudson River, about 100 miles north of New York City, is like the Hamptons, but slightly less pretentious. There's old money here and new. Down the long private drive, past a clump of birches, there it sits, the Merton home on its vast expanse of lawn, presented like a cake on a platter. <clears throat> a glimpse of a swimming pool to the left. Behind is a ravine and thick trees on either side of the property guarantee privacy. This is prime real estate. It's so still and undisturbed. A weak sun is out and some scudding clouds. It's four o'clock in the afternoon on Easter Monday. Elsewhere, children are greedily finishing off their chocolate bunnies and foil wrapped eggs, gauging what's left and eyeing how much remains in the baskets of their siblings. But there are no children here. The children have grown up and moved away. Not far, mind you. They were all over just yesterday for Easter Sunday dinner. <clears throat> the place looks deserted. There are no cars in the driveway. They are shut away behind the doors of the four-car garage. There's a Porsche 911 convertible. Fred Merton likes to drive that one, but only in the summer when he throws his golf clubs in the trunk. For winter, he prefers the Lexus. His wife, Sheila, has her white Mercedes with the white leather interior. She likes to put on one of her many colorful Hermes scarves, check her lipstick in the rearview mirror and go out to meet friends. She won't be doing that anymore. A house this grand, this polished, glossy white marble floor beneath an elaborate tiered chandelier in the entryway, fresh flowers on a side table. You'd think there must be staff for upkeep, but there's only one cleaning lady, Arena, who comes in twice a week. She works hard for the money but she's been with them so long, more than 30 years, that she's almost like family. It must have looked perfect before all this. A trail of blood leads up the pale carpeted stairs. To the left in the lovely living room, a large china lamp is lying broken on the Persian rug, its shade askew. A little farther along, beyond the low glass coffee table, is Sheila Merton in her night clothes, 
utterly still. <clears throat> She's dead, her eyes open, and there are marks on her neck. There's no blood on her, but the sickening smell of it is everywhere. Something awful has happened here. In the large, bright kitchen at the back of the house, Fred Merton's body lies sprawled on the floor in a dark and viscous pool of blood. Flies buzz quietly around his nose and mouth. He's been viciously stabbed many, many times, his fleshy throat slit. Who would do such a thing? Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for sharing your book with us. Uh, oh, my pleasure. This was fun. It's been really fun. Wishing yes. you all the best for the release in the UK. And I hope that the US continues to be successful. Thank you. Thank you.